0: Should We Trust a Theory? by Joseph Silk, Gresham Professor of Astronomy. So welcome to this lecture. Um, Sorry for the three minute delay, technical problems, but I think we're all all set now. So I'm going to um, try to give you a view about um, something that um, is very common in in many branches of science. That There's um, sometimes a very compelling theory of some phenomenon, um, and the evidence may be rather sparse, and so the issue some comes up. You know, what trust should we have in this theory? So I'm going to give you some examples of um, uh, such theories, and um, so these are the four theories I'm going to tell you a little bit about. Um, they're all rather amazing theories, or a bit connected. Some of them. One's inflation. Uh, Another one is called Boltzmann Brains. Another one is String Theory. And finally, the Multiverse. Okay, so these are all actually great buzzwords in physics and science. And um, the the bottom line in all of these is the question, where did the universe come from? Um, And this is a very deep question. Um, And when you ask a question like this about the beginning or even before the beginning... This attracts much more, many more people than just physicists. It attracts philosophers, for example, and they have a lot to say about untestable theories, and so do some physicists. So I thought I would give you an example, um, just to show you uh, how this debate goes on um, between um, philosophers, actually, who who worry about reality, about whether what we see in the universe is the truth or not, and the physicists. So. Uh, the example I'm going to show you um, is this. It's called the black swan test. Um, so um, you've never seen a black swan, but um, this um, image was shown to um, a room full of philosophers. Okay? And they deduced the following. Um, some swans are white, they knew that. Some are black, some are black and white, no doubt but what they concluded was these at least one swan has got a black side okay and um and then you know they said consider a herd of these unilateral one-sided swans um you know is left right parity conserved that is um facing one direction is the left side always black or not and would their children their progenitor uh, baby swans also um have the same left, right, you know, one side, black, one side, whatever, okay. And then they trooped out, and the physicists came in, and they were shown the picture too. Um, And they concluded, again, from their prior knowledge, that blackness was a very, very rare phenomenon. None of them had ever seen a black swan. And so they said, well, this could be one of the greatest problems in physics or in biophysics, and that there must be some sort of anthropic explanation. And the word anthropic is a buzzword. I'll come to that later. It means that the presence of us as observers somehow has a big effect on what we may see around us in the universe. Um, and so what came out of this? Well, this was um, what the philosophers concluded, um, um, that the ontology and epistemology of swan symmetry launched a whole new field of philosophy, which soon split into different areas, empiricist realism, positivist, constructivism, and postmodernist methodology. Okay, just to give you some buzzwords. And then the physicists had their go, and and, and they said, well, um, we will persuade the funding agencies to launch a major research initiative um, in fundamental biophysics and exoplanet oceanography to answer these key questions. What is their origin? What DNA are they made of? And what is their future evolution? So we have, you know, somewhat different approaches. Um to um, uh, swan blackness. Okay, so inflation. Okay, so this is um, a most amazing theory of the beginning of the universe. Um, And um, this is a couple of pioneers in 1980. This is one of them, what he wrote. Um, He said, why is our universe so big? Why is it so uniform? Why is it so isotropic? And why doesn't it rotate? Why Why parallel lines do not intersect? Um, all of this, he says, should not be dismissed as trivial facts of life. They should be considered as experimental data uh, requiring an explanation, and that came with the invention of inflation. And he went on to say, um, it's very hard to build models of inflation that don't lead to a multiverse. And the multiverse is this concept of many, many universes. We live in just one of them, but they're all out there. Um, with different aspects that we can perhaps never see. But this was a prediction. Um, and everything can be created from nothing. It's fair to say the universe is the ultimate free lunch. That was the co-founder of inflation who gave us that quote, and this is a cartoon uh, indicating the uh, how hard it is without waving your hands to explain the size of the universe. Okay. Um, so, um, some theories are never going to be tested, okay? Um, Well, that's fine, but there are other theories. Maybe we shouldn't work on those theories. There are other theories that are generically untestable, but maybe there are special cases of those theories that you can test, if the dice roll favourably. Inflation happens to be one of those. Um, um, And then there are theories that will be testable someday in the future, but we just need, you know, bigger telescopes and, bigger experiments basically, uh, and inflation is probably one of these actually that will require a real um, focus of effort uh, that may cost us a lot. Okay, But what does it do for us? Why is it worth so much? Well, it made three predictions. So the universe um, began um, um, in some very irregular way um, and sort of I, I have to draw this a bit like an expanding balloon, but of course I'm really talking in three dimensions, but the analogy goes through. Um, but as this balloon was expanded, it became, you know, very, very smooth and flat. And, and, and so, and locally, you know, if it blow it up big enough, it would, be, it would seem quite flat. And so inflation theory predicted that space, the geometry of space should be that of a of plane. We call that Euclidean space, flat space. Um, it also predicted that the universe should be very, very large. Now, perhaps we knew that at the time, but this is definitely a consequence of the, the inflation, maybe even infinite, okay but incredibly large. And finally, um, it, it predicted that some of these tiny ripples should survive very, very small, almost unmeasurable, but they would be the seeds of the structure of the universe, the seeds of galaxy formation. So it's an amazing theory. Um, um, It it involved a very, very rapid expansion of the universe in the first tiny fraction of a second. And just to give you some concept of that, if they take all the matter in the universe now and imagine it before inflation, this this is actually drawn to scale, okay, Um, and irregular too. So it's, you know, so that's basically the theory. Now, the universe we see is incredibly complicated, um, so this is uh, one of the deepest images ever taken with a Hubble telescope. And understanding all this structure, we're looking at galaxies. And as you can see, there are some galaxies which are perhaps a little bit nearer than some of the others because they're more extended. And there are others, that look at these very faint spots that are much further away. But each one of these tiny spots, if you were close to it, would appear as big as these nearby galaxies. And each of these galaxies has, is like the Milky Way. It has many, many billions of stars in So the universe is complicated, has many, many galaxies, and within those there are stars and there are planets and and there are dust clouds. And actually trying to understand how all this is formed is very difficult. I mean, we can't tackle this with our biggest computers, just like we can't predict the weather, you know, in London in a a month's time, for example, with our biggest computers at the the meteorological centres. However, um, the good news is that the, the battle isn't lost because... If we um, look at the sky um, and we can look back, look at it in the microwave region, we can see the cosmic microwave background, which comes from the first 100,000 years of the universe and then propagates to us. It's basically um, was there long before the structures formed. And in this radiation, which fills up all of space, it's measured today to be roughly an equivalent black body of three degrees Kelvin, so it's microwaves. But basically, because it was present before the structures formed, it contains the seeds from which the structures eventually developed. And I mean the fact there were tiny ripples in density means there were tiny ripples in radiation too. And that's what you see in this map of the sky where the uniform uh, structure's been taken out. And if you take this map of the sky, the microwave background sky, measured with, with, usually with satellites, one with a recent satellite, um, you can divide it up into fluctuations on different angular scales. And the interesting story is that... Um, you can describe the model, each of these points is data from this map, you can describe the curve that fits everything beautifully with just six numbers. So the universe from being incredibly complicated today, you can go back to the early universe and six numbers alone would suffice to explain a description of what we see. Now, that doesn't mean to say we know where these six numbers came from, but it's just a description of what we see around us, which does make the job of the cosmologist much easier. OK, um, so um, this is a, a brief history of everything that we need to know about the universe. So we began um, uh, in some incredibly hot and very, very dense region, not necessarily very small because, um, you know, uh, it could have been even large, but it be- definitely became much, much larger when this process of inflation occurred, which led to this enormous boost in size of the universe as the matter changed its properties and that led to the this injection of energy. Anyway, this all happened early and then after about 100,000 years or so, uh, there were these microwave photons and so they come directly to us and we look with our telescopes and that's what we see. But in between then and now was the when the structure formed, the galaxies developed. And we call much of this time the Dark Ages because we can't really see uh, the beginnings of the structure, but there was a time when the first stars formed, roughly here, the the first clouds, developing into galaxies. And so this is sort of the story of the universe. This is where we are. We can look back this far. Can we ever probe the beginning? That's the purpose of my talk today. What are the theories of the beginning? Can we ever test them? Okay. So again, just to... again, emphasise what a big revolution of thinking this was. Um, before 1980, this is roughly what we'd have thought about, you know, the Big Bang theory, um, developed over, over much of the 20th century, the, the, um, the, the 50 years or so before uh, 1980. And, you know, this was the size of the universe, roughly, and maybe it was a little bit bigger, um, full of galaxies, billions of galaxies. But now we think... After this process of inflation, it's much, much larger. And so here we are. This is the same region that we can see with the biggest telescopes. And who knows how far it goes on? Much of the same that we see here, presumably... Um, uh, It would be odd to think there were weird things outside our horizon. This is our horizon we can never see. This is how far light's travelled since the Big Bang, so we can't see any further. As time goes on, maybe we'll see more and more, or maybe not, depending on how the expansion changes. But that is sort of a picture of how infinitesimal we are in the grand space of things. Okay, so how on earth do we test this? So there is one beautiful idea um, for testing uh, the... uh, this inflation theory, which explains the enormous size of the universe, um, and that is to look at this microwave radiation, and here is another view of the sky with these tiny ripples in the radiation, which are the seeds from which the galaxy is formed. Okay, Um, and so it turns out that one of the great predictions of the inflation theory has been that the universe, in this dramatic expansion, excited changes in space and time, which are gravitational waves, the analogue of sound waves, which are compressions in the air, but for gravity, okay? Or the analogue of electromagnetic waves, which carry your internet, your television, but for gravity. And, and so these tiny waves, um, although they're red become so low, so low in frequency by today, we probably can never measure and they do leave their imprint on the microwave background on these photons and they produce sort of um, a weird sort of kinkiness in the photons called polarization especially polarization that we're going to we're trying to measure very hard it's very hard to measure um, we've basically measured the fluctuations but you have to do 10 or 100 times better sensitivity to measure the twists of the radiation that might carry the signature of gravity waves and so to do this, um, many, many experiments are being designed today. And I want to give you some flavour of how rich a subject it is because um, to, these are examples of satellites. Um, this one um, is, will be launched by the Japanese if funding is approved. This one by the European Space Agency um, and in you know, a few years' time. And they're designed explicitly to test inflation by measuring this. And then there's a whole parallel set of projects which say, well, maybe going into space is great, but we can build bigger things on the ground. You have the Earth's atmosphere, that's a problem. So there's a parallel effort going underway on the Earth. And there you have to go to special environments, okay, where the air is really, really dry, so you can see these microwaves much more easily with your sensitivity. So here's an experiment at the South Pole, okay, um, uh, under construction. Here's one in the Atacama Desert in Chile. Both of these are American. And here's a third one, which is being launched in a balloon, up to 100, um, um, uh, up, up to 10, probably 50 or 60 kilometers in height, actually. Okay, any, anyway, um, so that will, um, all those things are happening. But the problem with all of these experiments is, is that there is no guarantee of any signal, because this is an example of what I said that particular theories of inflation can give you this signal, but most of them probably do not. So if we're lucky, we'll measure something, uh, but maybe we won't. And so that's an example of a theory that uh, may never be testable. Okay, Um, so um, that's not the only issue to do with inflation. Let me tell you now about another one. And this one is called um, Boltzmann Brains. And this is truly an amazing story. Um, Ludwig Boltzmann was a great physicist in the 19th century um, who invented what we consider the concept of entropy and the second law of thermodynamics. That is Boltzmann, OK? Um, and so that is basically um, the fact that, you know, in, entropy can only increase, and entropy is a measure of disorder or chaos. We're all going to eventually, um, you know, we at the moment are highly ignorant organized in this room where a patch of low entropy, on the average, disorder increases, will eventually you know return to dust, etc, whatever, and, and that's the way things will go in the future. And so um, he um, uh, developed this vision of the universe, Boltzmann did, um, And um, his statement was, the second law says that entropy uh, cannot ever decrease. It must always stay constant or increase. That would be bad news because we wouldn't be here if, that, if it was precisely true, but it's a law that's only true on the average, statistically speaking. There are patches of low entropy, high order, um, and we are examples of them. The Earth is an example, etc. cetera. Um, uh, and uh, and so, so what we conclude is, while the universe also at the beginning was, had no order, was just you know random fluctuations, okay, um, we locally are in a state of of unusually low entropy, but on the average, the balance must be there, We and, and disorder can only increase for us. Okay, so the conclusion is that we are a local fluctuation. So I should say that um, Boltzmann had a very tough time. He was one of the world's greatest physicists, um, but he had to deal with people who... Um, um, did not even believe in the existence of atoms. Philosophers mostly, and it was. And he also he was somewhat depressive. He committed suicide, in fact, at a fairly young age. However, let me go on. Um, this measure of um, disorder increasing is sometimes called the arrow of time. Again, our future must be, um, uh, you know, this increase of entropy measures the passage of time on the average. And, and the reason Boltzmann was discouraged at the time was here's an example of a pendulum swinging um, and, and, you know, his, some of his colleagues said, well, there's no, there's no sense of time in this. It just keeps on going. It's not, it wouldn't, an ideal pendulum wouldn't slow down or anything. Um, but I'm going to show you an example of entropy, I think a beautiful example. Okay, so this is um, a very famous painting by René Magritte. And so, um, so here we have the rooster, okay, the chicken, okay, and here's its egg, and here its egg has been cooked. Okay, so this is definitely a question of, um, of entropy increasing, okay, so incredibly complex, laid an egg, and, and, the, and the poor chicken is a little bemused as to what the direction of entropy is perhaps uh, that was uh, uh, behind presumably Magritte's thoughts when he did this, uh, this painting. Anyway... Um, so the conclusion from all of this is that the universe that we see is an incredibly rare fluctuation. Okay? Now, I'm going to give you an example of another rare fluctuation. Your kids, okay, if you have kids, their bedroom. Okay? As you know, if you leave them there, it will get messier and messier and messier. Okay? But um, just by chance, if you wait long enough, just by chance, may never happen unless you wait a really long time, you'll find the bedroom cl- cleared, cleared up. Okay. It's an example of a rare fluctuation. Okay? And that's the sort of thing that explains us okay, in the universe. Okay, um, So um, commenting on this idea, um, here are two um, physicists, string theorists, who you know, um, explore the implications of what Boltzmann said. They said the most likely fluctuation, because isn't with everything you know, is simply your brain um, complete with memories, fluctuating out of chaos, then immediately equilibrating back into the chaos. Scene. What do they mean by this? Well, you know, re- saying that all we in this room, the whole earth, the sun, etc., is a rare fluctuation, involves an awful lot of things. But philosophically, it's just our brain that experiences all of this. So the cheapest way for science to make a fluctuation is to recreate brains. Okay? So the ultimate paradox um, from Boltzmann's Argument is the universe should be full of brains. We call them Boltzmann brains that come and they go. Um, we are just much more unlikely for this fluctuation. It's only our brains that count. Okay, and so this is this is the um, uh, a view of the universe. There's a brain. It's full of brains. Okay, and we in fact um, this is absurd. We all think, but it is a prediction for inflation because inflation. Is a theory that keeps on reproducing itself and making more and more universes. And um, they should all, um, you know, it's gone on for, a, can go on forever for a very, very long time. And the prediction of the theory is that it'd be full of these brains. So this is nonsensical. Uh, everyone says this. But it's considered to be a real problem with the theory of inflation. So I've given you an experimental issue and now a theoretical issue. OK. Um, Okay, so inflation is an outcome of, um, among other things, of um, um, something called string theory. And string theory is um, maybe the ultimate theory of physics because it tries to unite the gravity theory and the quantum theory. So, going back to another great physicist, Max Planck, he said there were three constants in nature, okay? Um, One was the speed of light. Okay, and that was the foundation of Einstein's special relativity theory. Okay, another was um, the constant of gravity, Newton's constant of gravity, G, which is the foundation of Einstein's general relativity theory. And then there's the Planck constant, which d- describes quanta of light, and that's the foundation of quantum mechanics, and Planck was the founder of that theory. Okay, um, and he said the following. Um, these are just fundamental constants. Um, these necessarily retain their meaning for all times and for all civilizations, even extraterrestrial and non-human ones, and can therefore be designated as natural units. Okay. Okay. So um, what is the consequence of Planck's reasoning? So here it is. I take a combination of the three fundamental constants. Okay. Planck's constant, Newton's constant and the speed of light. And then I come up, there's only one thing you can do with all three of them, and that you produce a number, okay? Um, And it's an incredibly tiny number. It's a length scale 10 to the negative 33 centimeters. Um, And um, now, in some sense, the smaller the length scale, if you want to explore this, You need high energy to get there. I mean, basically, if you throw atoms together as you do in the Large Hadron Collider, then the higher the energy, the more you break them up and explore smaller and smaller scales. So this represents also an incredibly high energy, ultimate energy that we can imagine for any particle. It's the Planck scale, the Planck energy also. Okay. Um, now, the question is, can we ever get there to study this? Um, now, historically we've gone from the scales of atoms in the past 100 years, which are about 100 millionth of a centimetre, and now, with our most powerful nuclear colliders, we can study the scales of atomic nuclei, which are maybe... um, and fractions and quarks, Okay, which get us down to a scale that's um, 10 to the negative 17 centimetres. That's the current limit. So to get to um, Planck scales, that's... The final frontier of physics, if you like, it means you know another almost 20 or at 17 factors of 10, which seems incredible today, because you know for every factor of 10, when you build an atom smashing machine, remember in Geneva it's underground, 20 conference, with all these magnets superconducting magnets around it to send the particles in circles in different directions, crashing into each other. If you want to build a machine with 10 times the energy. That has got to be about ten times as big and would cost you ten times as much. So we are now discussing building something ten times the size of the Large Hadron Collider, and the Chinese are, and the Europeans are, the Americans are. It will cost ten times as much. It will be a tunnel, 200 kilometres in circumference. Fortunately, the tunnel can be deep, so the farmers in Switzerland don't care too much. It seems if they're paid enough anyway. Um, and, and so that—that's one plan. And in China, presumably, similar logic applies too. Although it's hard, maybe hard to understand from a distance, but anyway, that, so that's one future. But that just gets you a factor of ten, right? If you want to go to this incredible scale, you'd have to build a collider that goes all the way to the moon, which is completely ridiculous. Okay, so clearly, uh, we can't understand now how you could ever achieve this directly by an experiment. But that probably is just because we're not clever enough, OK, in terms of people may have future ideas that are better someday in the future. But right now, a brute force collider will not work. So we will left for it to, to explore other ideas. Um, OK, and so the other idea then is the theory behind this. So experiment is an example. Experiment simply is not good enough. So let's turn to theory. Maybe theory can be so illuminating that we can be convinced this whole idea is true about the Planck scale, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, my title is Do We Trust the Theory? And I'm going to try to explain now why the logic there is persuasive, if not totally convincing. Okay. Um, So we essentially want to unite or unify the quantum theory and the gravity theory. And that's what we have to do to get close to the beginning of the universe, to get into the Planck scale of beyond for the very beginning. We need to mix them, and that, that's because we know that on such tiny scales the quantum theory is very important, and gravity is important too, because that's, that's the universe, so we've got to somehow unify them together. And, and string theory um, is a theory that can do this. OK, so what is string theory? OK, so it says that ultimately particles, the ultimate particles, are not just points, okay, which to some approximation we assume in, 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 in the quantum theory, okay? Um, um, but they're really tiny loops in higher dimensions. Why higher dimensions? Because the idea is that um, all those extra dimensions are curled up so we can't see them, but if ever you can look on with high enough resolution, you would see them. So let me try to explain this slightly better. I'm, it's going to be hard to do this, but let me try. So this is the conventional theory of two particles coming together. Out comes some, some product, okay? And this was developed by Richard Feynman. This is called a Feynman diagram. It's the way we do particle physics, Okay. Um, but the string theory says, oh, well, this, this is going to be singular. It's going to blow up you know, mathematically. It doesn't make sense if I go to these really high energies. So the string theory says, let's, produce, let's replace this by a fuzzy, vibrating string, um, and that then gets rid of these singular effects, and all the extra dimensions are just invisible. So here's an example of if you look at a cable... Okay, and then you blow up the cable, you can suddenly see there's all this structure inside it, these wires going around. So in th- these are just you know so compressed, so compactified, that you don't see them. So the idea is that um, you know, the universe began in these higher dimensions where string theory prevailed, and then very, very early on, probably at the p- when the universe was expanding through the Planck scale, the Planck time, we call that, um, it, all these extra... Things, degrees of freedom collapse, and we don't see them anymore. They're still there on some tiny, tiny scale. OK. So the interesting thing is that this theory, crazy though it sounds, has been really successful. Um, and, you know, you can wonder why. Well, let me give you an analogy. We don't see atoms. I mean, that made Boltzmann desperate, for example. Uh, we don't even see quarks. But we know they exist because we do experiments when we smash atoms together, we can deduce that the atoms are there. And Einstein, in fact, first deduced the presence of atoms by studying what is called Brownian motion, the jostling of molecules, which you, and you couldn't see the atoms pushing them around, but he deduced they were there. Um, so, you know, and so there are so many applications, you know, and you can specify, you know, television, whatever, that we know these things exist, okay? So there is little doubt about it. Um, so the question is, how could we possibly hope to prove that these much tinier particles called strings, loops of string, exist? And uh, the only sort of hope that we have, really, is that our knowledge of physics is in a very primitive stage. You know, um, We've only been doing modern physics, maybe for two centuries, okay? Um, and two centuries, that's nothing. I mean, the sun will... Before it destroys the Earth by, you know, swallowing the Earth you know, as a red giant, we have, you know, several billions of years to go. Now, obviously, we could destroy the Earth completely in that time, uh, you know, depending on who is present, the U.S., etc. But, you know, you just can't predict where we could be going. 200 years is infinite. So, uh, you know, I think many scientists are, are optimistic um, that we may someday get there. Um, but there is another point of view which uh, many of my colleagues subscribe to, and they say we don't even need to, pr- to prove these things exist. If we have a theory that's so compelling, explains so many different things, then fine, it's, it's going to have some reasonable probability that it's a true theory. Okay, okay so um, there's an issue with that argument, and again, quoting Planck, experiment is the only means of knowledge at our disposal. Everything else is poetry and imagination. Um, So, um, that's an issue, obviously. Um, Do you believe a theory? Because it explains so much if you can't test it. Um, So, here's another uh, quote, which I like. And this is pro string theory, if you like. Everything not forbidden by the laws of physics is compulsory somewhere in the universe, okay? So, these things could be up there, okay. So, um, the challenge is then... This this scale, this planck scale to test string theory is incredibly small and the only place we can really do this is the Big Bang, the beginning of the universe. And and I have to admit, so far there are um, uh, no really good ideas for doing this, but um, nevertheless it's still a a convincing, because it explains other things, it's a convincing theory. Um, So there's another issue too, which is that... um, the fundamental constants of nature in the string theory, in inflation theory, which keeps on uh, the the version which keeps on leading to a a multiverse, to many different different universes, it says even the constants of nature may be chosen randomly, and we just happen to live in a universe in which they have the right values to allow life to exist, planets to exist, stars to exist, stars that may eventually explode and make elements like carbon to exist, leading to You know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so, if, so one thought, one prediction actually from string theory is that, well, um, maybe in this case, because it, you know, it it leads to many different values of the constants, the only way to accommodate them, because we're pretty sure that in the universe we can see, we know the laws of physics, they're Planck's numbers, etc. um there were just many, many big bangs, okay? So why not, okay? And that leads us into something called the multiverse, which I want to tell you a little bit about. That is, there are many, many universes out there. We're just in one of them, and we can try to explain some of these problems that we have no idea of explaining about unification leading to different variations in fundamental I- issues um, just by appeal to saying they're... They're out there somewhere, they're not in our universe, therefore we're, we're, we know life has gone on just fine. So um, OK, um, so again, going back to uh, the founder of one of, of inflation, he, he wrote, "The large size, flatness, I start to be of the universe should be as experimental data require explanation, and that was the theory of inflation. And he says then that our world makes infinitely many, exponentially large parts. The insurer of each of them behaves as if we're a separate universe. So that's the idea of what the multiverse is. Okay? Um, and it's an expectation of think theory. And we call this the multiverse. Um, and here's a quotation, um, uh, again from Linde. It's untestable. He admits it's untestable. But does that mean it's not actually physics? Okay, So that's the question, really. Um, can you have untestable theories, and which may, may nevertheless have some be the truth if there is such a thing as the truth, and I'll come to that in a moment too. So here is the problem we have in cosmology, okay? So we have a group of cosmologists debating the universe, and there is this enormous, there's an elephant in the room, right? Okay, and what is that elephant? Well, that elephant is what we call the dark energy, okay? So the dark energy has led to the acceleration of the universe. It's Einstein's cosmological constant, and it's measured, a measured number. These are the components of the universe, it's three quarters of the universe. It's the energy of the vacuum basically, and it's due to tiny quantum fluctuations, So where the quantum theory comes back in, averaging out to zero, but the energy of these fluctuations gives us a significant energy, which is measured, um, and um, this is the number it's measured to be, okay, by, by my colleagues, the observers. Now my other colleagues, who are the theorists, made a prediction. This was their prediction. And you notice they're incredibly different <laughs> by 120 factors of 10, and this has been called the worst prediction in physics. Okay, so, you know, we have a, we have a real issue here, right? So, so, so here is how the inflation theory in the multiverse addressed that issue. So it says that, in fact, there were just many, many universes out there. So here is our universe. You know, this is all we can see over here. And in the past, there were episodes which gave lie this is the mul- This is a huge area around us that represents an even bigger part of our universe. But then there were inflation epochs in the past that led to other universes. And so all of these are other universes. So we have so many other universes that in all of these, you know, this cosmic constant may have had very different values, maybe much larger values, probably so large that the universe would accelerate so much life couldn't have, no planets would have formed or anything. But here we are, just some random fluctuation in this particular universe which allowed us to be present. So the, the, um, the, one of the proponents of this, um, Leonard Susskind, says, we live in one tiny pocket where the value of the cosmological constant is consistent with our kind of life. And he's a string theorist, okay, and this is based on his application of string theory, and this is a, you know, so everything is, is tough out there, and this is one pocket. On the other hand, another cosmologist says, the multiverse theory can't make any predictions, it can explain anything. And so this is the sort of problem we have um, in in physics now, trying to make sense of all of this. So let me um, um, tell you one of the most um, interesting um, implications of of all of this. So again, um, quoting Planck again, science cannot solve the ultimate mystery of nature and that's because in the last analysis, we ourselves are a part of the mystery that we're trying to solve. So this is a very profound statement of, if you like, the fact that we live in a universe that uh, has to allow the presence of planets to form, etc. And therefore it's very hard to disangle the possibilities of other universes where life would not be there for us to observe. We sometimes call this the anthropic principle. Max Planck did not know about string theory. Okay, um, so. How do you... Now, I've said that my issue was, to, is this theory true or not? In fact, that's almost a meaningless statement. We can never prove that anything is true, okay? But what we can do is evaluate the probability of a theory being true, okay? Um, and so here is the um, the founder of evaluating our trust in a theory. So... Um, Thomas Bayes, who and his cemetery is actually very near here, just around the corner, in fact, um, for Old Street and um, in the Bunhill Fields burial ground. So, um, in the 18th century, he showed us how to calculate the odds um, that a theory may be true, and I'm going to give you an example of how this works. Okay, um, so he's he said that to calculate something like this. You need, you need data, okay? Um, and also you need some some evidence that you call a prior, some prior knowledge of what the possibilities might be. What, what, are, what are all the possibilities, okay? And so this is an example um, that, you know, I, I want to show you. Suppose that you go to the doctor and you take a test and there's a, a 99% chance, if you're sick, if you're sick, of testing positive, okay? Um, and you know that you know, roughly 1% of the population might be sick. Suppose you go to the doctor, you test positive, and they send you to the hospital, what is your chance of being sick? So anyone care to give me an estimate? 99%, right? Okay, that's completely wrong, and it turns out for the following reason, um, that there are 1% of healthy people that will test positive too, although they're not really sick. And so when you're all sent to the hospital, there'll be equal numbers of sick people and non-sick people, and you only actually have a 50% chance of being sick when you're sent to the hospital. So that's an example. You know, that was Bayes' argument, basically, and if you want to go, you know, betting or something, you're well advised, or dabbling in the stock market, you're well advised to use uh, Bayesian arguments. Okay, anyway, so one of my colleagues, one of the most eminent string theorists, wrote this recently, he calculated using Bayesian statistics the probability that um, the multiverse exists. Okay? even though we cannot see it, we can never see it. This is his argument, and so he—I'm not going to read it all to you—but he starts with a prior of 50 percent, and this is because he says, um, uh, you know, it explains quantum mechanics, relativity, all these things we know exist. So there's a, anyway, and he goes on from there, and he ends up with this is my estimate for the likelihood of the multiverse exists: 94 percent. Now. You know, I I think he's gone completely wrong, okay? <laughs> uh, and, and it's the first step that is totally wrong, okay? But which is just based on his intuition, his wishful thinking perhaps. Okay, but let's suppose this is true. I want to t- discuss another incredible consequence of having an infinite number of universes out there, okay? And... Um, okay. And... Um, that means that outside, somewhere in that multiverse, there is another you, okay, another hall, another... People with same memories. You have so many replications, right? So, um, uh, you know, this just seems nonsensical. But if you, have an, if you can throw the dice in a number of times, you might think, aha, um, you know, that has to be true. There, there's another, you know, um, Gresham College lecture going on, exactly the same, same audience, same memories, whatever. Okay, so does that... Make, that obviously sounds absurd, um, uh, but it's very hard to prove why that is. Um, and so the consequence, you know, people have said, written about this, there should be an infinite number of other yous, all identical copies with your past, with your memories, okay, out there somewhere. You never get to them. They're too far away, but fine, in some other universe. Um, and this is the leading theory for what happened in the early universe. Okay, um, OK, and this is written, actually, in a recent book um, by uh, Max Tegmark. Um, many exact copies of you. OK, okay. so I think this is completely wrong. OK, and let me, try, let me try to explain why. And this is another story of a famous mathematician who also committed suicide. This is a sad, but, you know, manic. But anyway, this is the inventor of infinity, OK, George Cantor. Um, and so in the 19th century, he said, basically, that some infinities are bigger than other infinities, OK? And let me try to give you an example of that. Suppose you count all the numbers, OK, starting 1, 2, 3, et cetera. You can go on for an infinite sequence, OK? But if you do the same thing with irrational numbers, suppose you start off at, um, you know, 0.01 or something and you start adding more and more decibel points, you get to 1, OK? you may think that you can get an infinite number of numbers, right? Just keep on adding. But in fact, you can now go to 0.001 and repeat that and you get another infinity and so on and so forth, right? So infinity is relative. There are higher infinities than other infinities. So that's what Cantor told us, and this is generally accepted now, although at the time it was a great, you know, he, his colleagues did not believe it at all. Um, and um, so in the multiverse, then, there are this infinite number of planets inhabited by an infinite number of people. But, you know, you're counting one by one, right? And so you get, you know, that's why Tegmark said there might be, you know, an infinite number of replicas of us. Um, But the reason this is wrong is that, um, I think, is that we are incredibly complex entities um, and it's like counting the irrational numbers. If you try to conjure up, you know, your memories and your concepts of what beauty and poetry, all this stuff is... You can't just do that in a, in a, in a, in a um, you know, just by counting the numbers of atoms or synapses in your brain. It's got to be something. And so I would say there simply are not enough stars, even in the multiverse, um, given that infinity, to to, to clone us. So, which is good. Okay. Okay. Um, Okay, so are there any other ways to handle this issue of the multiverse? Okay, and so one of the arguments is that the main, one of the main reasons for this, for the cosmic constant it's also you know, a measure of the acceleration of the universe, is that maybe we live in, in a very big hole. So this is a, a map of the universe, um, and, and, th- and in this this is how far we can see. And in this diagram, it's exactly the same here as here. But in this diagram, there's a very big under-dense region. Okay? And so the idea is that if you're denser than average, you're, expand- you're collapsing a little more rapidly. If you're less dense, you're expanding a little more rapidly. It looks like acceleration. So in principle, if our universe was somewhat special, this is very much an anti-communican argument, then that could be a way to, um, to, to model it. So, you know, people have not ultimately said this Argument's totally crazy. Or it's very, very hard to make work, given current data. But it's a possibility I just want to throw out at you. And here's another possibility. And so if you take um, when this argument was given, um, at that time, it was they, they were able to count the number of possible multiverses in some theory. Um, and so, you know, 10, it's a huge number, 10,500, but um, these guys cleverly rearranged them so that in topologically, and so there was just a very small number at the beginning, and so, and they argue that if you, you know, if physics requires topological symmetry, that is, you don't want to be too donut-shaped or having multiple, you know, uh, spaces, etc., which might be very hard to live in, then uh, this is a way of cutting down from a big number to a small number. The only problem with this argument is that the latest word um, increases this number to a much, much bigger number um, on the number of these the, these possible spaces. So we don't really know if, if this argument of simplifying things could ever work. Okay, so let me um, try to um, bring this to an end um, with um, two quotes again from Susskind. Um, so he is um, very optimistic about the multiverse. He writes, I would bet that at the turn of the 22nd century Uh, Philosophers and physicists will look nostalgically at the present and recall a golden age in which the narrow, provincial 20th century concept of the universe gave way to a bigger, better multiverse of mind-boggling proportions. Okay, that's one view. And um, the other view is that the very nature of the scientific enterprise is at stake in the multiverse debate the multiverse advocate, advocates are proposing weakening the nature of scientific proof in order to claim that multiverses provide a scientific explanation. This is a dangerous tactic because multiverses can explain anything. Their answer is like to be there is none. Okay, so um, that's a vigorous debate that goes on. I would say the jury is out in physics as to which of these two views is correct. There are People convinced on both sides. And let me just leave the final word on this Um, to uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And I don't think we have extraordinary evidence, even non experimental evidence, yet. Okay, thank you. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.